Hi, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers' Festival. We hope you enjoy this conversation recorded live at the 2021 festival. Hello everyone. I'd like to acknowledge that we're on Gadigal country. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the ongoing sovereignty of those people. Um, I'm a guest here. I'm a Gunai Kurnai, Gunajmara, Wiradjuri and Yorta Yorta woman. Um, and I live on Gunai Kurnai country and it's with respect to those people that I'm here. Um, I might get us all uh, to introduce ourselves. Is that okay with you fellas? Because I find bios are really um, boring and like they have the weirdest bits of information that you don't even care about on there. Yeah, so I'd love for us to introduce ourselves, who our people are and our, I guess, yeah, our relationship maybe with writing. So we're at a writer's festival. Yeah, that sort of thing. Lorna, you want to go first? <laughs> Sorry. Um, so my name's Lorna, uh, Lorna Munro. I am a Radrick Milleroy poet and podcaster, primarily. Um, there's many things that I guess I've dabbled in. Um, I grew up in Redfern, Waterloo. Um, this is probably um, the first time I've been to a Sydney Writers' Festival event in a while without having security called on me, so thank you. Um, um, I worked on a podcast for two years, I think is like the work that I'm most proud of at the moment. It was about gentrification and colonisation in Waterloo that's happening at the moment. Um, I think it's very important to understand tools of colonisation, a very, um, you know, colonisation, gentrification is colonisation, it's just sold to us in um, a nice, healthy kind of um, salad way, I guess. Um, so, you know, I've been writing for a while. Um, I'm actually writing a play and a book at the moment um, that's set 200 years in the future. Um, I am like a history nerd, a comic book nerd. Growing up in the city, you know, we had access to black dolls, we had access to black comics, um, and I guess um, I've always had that standard kind of reiterated around me growing up in Redfern, um, just being encouraged uh, to express your blackness and your indigeneity in, in every and any way that you would like. Um, so I guess that really comes out in my work. It's really assertive, can be seen as aggressive, um, but, you know, reclaiming and world conquering and all these kind of things that we're kind of doing is not an um, easy thing to do. So it's a very complex layered thing and I really appreciate the depth of um, subjects, I guess. Um, my name is Miley Hermans and I'm a Wiradjuri woman. I was born and raised on Bunjalung country and now I live on Ngunnawal and Nambri country, which is Canberra. Um, and I would say I'm a non-fiction writer. I've tried to write fiction and poetry. I've never succeeded <laughs> very well. Um, and I'm really interested in writing about disability justice, specifically looking at histories of colonisation and looking at... Um, I guess how anti-blackness operates with systems of ableism and looking at how those foundations of eugenics are very, very similar, well, they're the same. Um, and so the majority of my work has been essay writing on institutions like hospitals and looking at the way that 
um, I guess, different carceral logics operate beyond just prisons, but they operate in hospitals, they operate in nursing homes, they operate in disability group homes. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm really interested in. Uh, hello, um, my name's Keith. I'm a Barkindji Mayinampa uh, man from um, uh, Wilkenya. I grew up on um, Dari country out at Parramatta. And um, yeah, I guess uh, I never really considered myself a writer, but um, I have uh, written uh, lately. And um, I guess what I'm most interested, well, I, not what I'm interested in, I guess my own lived experience, what I uh, write about is um, being in the uh, punitive justice system and um, how that affected me as uh, not only an Aboriginal man, but also um, somebody from uh, the LGBT plus community as a queer man um, and how those two intersections uh, were for, for me uh, and my experience um, going through custody. Uh, I'm currently an organiser for um, a community service. Uh, well, I wouldn't even call it a community service. It's more a, uh, just a group of people that really um, care about other people and really want to envision a, a future, um, you know, uh, without um, without custody, but you know, um, it's a long road. It's deep work, and um, I'm really happy to be in the space um, and and organising with um, some really amazing uh, people. And um, yeah, so that's me. Thank you. Hi everyone. Can you hear me? Talking, especially in a microphone, gives me so much dysphoria. Um, and so I'm glad that I can't really hear me. Um, my name is Estelle, I'm 24. I am a sister girl of First Nations trans woman. Um, I also want to extend the respects paid to all sister girls and brother boys, potentially in the room or in Sydney at the moment. Um, I moved from Noongar country six years ago, um, which is where I started writing, specifically about the intersection of being black and queer um, and the experiences First Nations people have with their identity and their sexuality kind of diverging off of the way that the system wants us to identify. Um, I haven't really spoken anything like this in a while. It's been quite a few years since I've had anything. I worked with Nacre a long time ago on some campaigns with other young queer black mob. Um, and so it's exciting to be here and talk about the future and imagine that and yeah. Your nan's in the audience too. And my eh? nan is here. Like less than three months ago, she had like a triple bypass and like couldn't even walk. And like she managed to get herself on the bus to my place alone today. And I'm so excited to have her here because she's the most staunch supporter of me and my journey. And like I couldn't imagine having a better grandmother as a trans woman. So, yeah. Deadly. Well, I guess today is about radical black futures. Well, every day is, I guess. Um, and I just wanted to provide a bit of context around why this was something I wanted to get people together to have a chat about and why I chose these particular people. Um, I, I was telling Lorna this earlier. I, um, I really, like, historically have really identified as, like, a black pessimist um, or realist, however you want to say it. But I 
typically haven't really um, haven't really found things like hope or even the idea that things can change. I, yeah, I'm not not necessarily too convinced on or whatever. But then I had kids and I was like, well, I can't just be moping around being like, oh, nothing's going to change because that's probably going to, like, really depress them. Um, so I've been really... Rather than thinking... Rather than operating in a critical state, which I feel like I am a lot, and even when I'm thinking about the future, I think they're very related to each other, like critique and... Gener generative work. Um, I, I want to know... I want to invite other blackfellas to think about what our future looks like, and I want to know other black people's visions for the future, and I want to know these particular people. I've admired Lorna's work for quite a long time, and I think she's one of our biggest, like, deep intellectual minds in this country. And I think you've been, like, years ahead of all of us in the way that you critique structures and also in the, your visions for the world. So it just made sense to be here in Sydney and to, like, this is your jam, this is your thing. So I think we all have a lot to learn from you. And Marley, you have your particular writing in the intersections between abolition and disability justice and kind of connecting all of those things in this country is like, it just is kind of groundbreaking and it makes me think in a way that not a lot of other people do. So it really made sense for you to be here. Um, and Keith, like you're doing the work, you're doing abolition work, you know, in this place and not because someone asked you to, not because some organisation got a grant and was like, oh, maybe we should get someone to do this. You did it because you saw something that needed to be done and you didn't wait to be invited. You went ahead and did it. I think that's really cool. And Estelle, your vision for the future and what, what is gender, what is sexuality, how do we live? I think you have some really brilliant things to say about that. Um, and I think we're all just really hot and deadly and smart, so <laughs> it made sense. Um, I might first... I'm really interested to know, because Lorna and I were just having a yarn before, I, like that pessimism or that thing about hope, like what is to imagine a future or to even conceptualise a future? Well, actually, I want to I know today, uh, sitting here right now, like do you think about the future much, everyone? Is that something you think about? And when you think about it and you see it or you feel it or whatever it might be, what does that look like? What does that feel like? And it might be 20 years from now. It might be 1,000 years from now. What is, what is the future for you in your mind? Um, I guess uh, for me, being someone who has been working in reclaiming language you know, and everything that comes along with that. And one of the biggest things that I guess a lot of people overlook when learning language is you have to unlearn English in order to actually understand, for me, a Wiradjuri worldview. Um, so I guess, you know, just to start there, for me, I guess being someone who has done a lot of work in decolonising my own thinking and um, really um, immersing myself in... Um, 
a Wiradjuri worldview, I don't even think of time the way that the colony thinks of time or the way that colonised people, um, Western society, think of time. To me, there's no past or future. It's a continuum. It's a continuous line. And, you know, there's always been um, someone that's walked this earth with this face, you know, this hair, these hands. Um, It's always kind of been there. And I guess it really speaks to a Gamilaroi worldview, which is... um, you know, and I've done a lot of poetry around this kind of concepts and, and really thinking about this. And I guess a lot of other people are starting to talk about it um, from my nations, which has been deadly to see. Because when I first started, a lot of people just kind of um, didn't really understand what I was talking about. But there's a word in, in Gomorrah language, um, and I've said this thousands of times before, um, and it's actually one of my favourite words, and it's a whole um, ideology. Um, this word is yalalu. Yalalu means once upon a time in the past, but also the future. So I guess it really speaks to um, our, our ancient, ancient, ancient ways of um, understanding time and um, taking your place in that continuum, um, being a vessel in that long line um, and what that means. And what does it mean to embody something for somebody else to then come along and um, embody that as well in their own way? So, you know, I think being blackfellas talking about this futurisms um, stuff, I think that we really need to unlearn some of these concepts that exist out there in the world around this same genre, because we ain't the same. We are ancient. We are magnificent. Um, we're the oldest living culture, continuous culture in the world. Um, you know, there's a lot that the world can learn from us. And I think the world has learnt a lot from us in ways of land management, in ways of um, society building, world building, the way, in ways of relationality. You know, and I think the longer that um, the world refuses to learn from us, it's going to bite them in the ass. Yeah, I would just build on what Lorna's saying too. I think about the future all the time and specifically from a disability justice lens that looks at the way that multiply marginalised disabled folks, particularly in Australia, looking at the way that disabled blackfellas um, are treated and have been subjected to eugenics and these different systems that all that are all essentially about controlling our bodies and our minds. Um, and to me, disability justice and futurisms is about changing the way that we care for each other. And I think that that is like a really deeply rooted principle of abolition as well. Um, And so like Lorna was saying, I think that that necessitates looking back um, to the different ways that our communities have always cared for each other um, before colonization imposed on us these different hierarchies and these different um, very individualistic um, ways of relating to each other. Um, So, yeah, I I always think about the future because I always am trying to envision and enact um, different ways of caring for my own family, for my community, um, for my friends and the people around me, um, and also not trying to reinvent the wheel, right? Like, always looking back um, and building off the work of those who have existed before me. So, yeah.
Um, so, I guess I, I would um, like I would also say that I'm like a pessimist. Um, I, you know, I, I, yeah. Um, but you know, I, I do think of the future, and in that, I think of uh, you know what kind of present we can have and what kind of uh, future that we envision. You know, and um, I guess to um, add on to from the previous two speakers, uh, you know, black uh, indigenous epistemology has predated uh, that of Plato and European ideas. And, um, you know, I think we, we've tried the white regime and the white way of thinking for this long and we can see where, what kind of society that, you know, we're in and the problems that we have. I don't think that uh, you know, it is like an individual uh, issue and that's why I do work around uh, mutual aid and um, uh, abolition. Um, I guess most people think of, you know, an abolition uh, perspective as if, you know, a world without prisons and they kind of ask you all these hard questions on, you know, well, what are you going to do with the pedophiles and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I think, um, you know, you in in my work, you know, it's not only working with the person that's caused harm, but also the person that has been harmed. So I think it's really important to not have black and white thinking on uh, on on the people that you know you would like to support. Like we're kind of all in it together, and um, it it starts simple for me. You know, I I cook for my uh, elderly neighbours, um, you know, I take the bins out, I give the recycled cans to my mum and, you know, she gives them to her neighbour. Um, I give my garage out to, you know, people that need it to store things or, you know, so I think it's, um, it's just being open with what you, what you have, what you can give and, um, you know, it doesn't have to wait till like a crisis moment. Um, you know, to, to offer this kind of uh, support, um, and 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 knowing you know your limitations, but also you know um, your abilities on you know how you can create a better world just in in your local community. So I think you know there's a lot of steps towards that, and I think um, if yeah, like having this conversation at home first and foremost. Um, and learning from Indigenous people, I think, uh, and, and their way of life is, is a good start. Yeah, I think about the future and the way that I would... The idea of hope itself was not something that I had for a really long time. Like, when I would get up in the morning, I would then have to conceptualise everything I would need to do to make me feel as confident and as capable as my probably cis-bodied white-haired neighbour, and I was already exhausted. Um, and so imagining the future and imagining a space where I'm not having to, to exhaust myself just to get to go is really important. And I think like the system isn't built to offer autonomy to First Nations folks to ask them what they hope for in the future. 
It's like our hopes have to be palatable, our hopes have to be measurable, our hopes have to be achievable by the system, not by us, because we're nothing without that system. Um, so I think asking us what we hope for the future, I, I think like a lot of us don't have an answer because we've never been able to really conceptualize what our lives look like either within collaboration with whiteness as a concept or with our own sovereignty. Like it's such a foreign concept to us, unfortunately. Um, and yeah, much like you, like you, Nika, where like the pessimism was fine until you realized there was something you needed to live for other than yourself. And you want to make that world better for them and for you as well. And like I've recently come into like more care of my 12 year old brother um, who is really, really special for me. And like when that introduction to my life happened, I then started thinking about hope in a different way. And like I was able to conceptualize it from more than just my own fear. Um, as well as like being around friends and really prioritizing the people I was sharing space with and being hopeful with them about experiencing things. I think like for a lot of black folks, hope is scary because it seems so unachievable. Um, yeah, so I'm hopeful that that'll get easier, that First Nations folks, that queer folks, that trans folks will be able to start their day at the same kind of weight as everyone else. Um, and see what we could create if we weren't spending so much time building ourselves up against the system. I really, I get anxious, like, thinking about, say, the next 10 years. Like, seeing how the world is dealing with, like, the global pandemic and who gets to live and who doesn't get to live and who's deemed worthy of, like, yeah, who, who gets resources... And then on top of that, I'm like, oh, climate change. And then, like, oh, capitalism. Like, Scott Morrison and the white man who follows Scott Morrison and the white man after him and then the white woman after him. Um, it's, like, really scary. But then, like, listening to you, Lorna, it's like, okay, well, that's 20 years and maybe that's 50 years. But we're, like, ancestors well, we're ancestors, so what does this mean for a thousand years? What does this mean beyond time, when time is the way that we're taught to know it? It's like, what is it? I often think, like, will we survive white people? And, yeah, will we survive them as a people? Well, see, I think, like, I would like to answer that question, and, and I, I guess this really speaks to the practice and the processes that I've been able to um, develop for myself. And, you know, I am a product of my community. I come from the most famous, biggest, blackest community that ever existed, which was Redfern, you know, and I've also been witness to the gentrification of that. Um, you know, a lot of my work speaks to that. Um, I was born in 1988, 200 years after illegal uh, British occupation invasion of this country. So for my mum, when she was organising all those protests and all that sort of stuff, I was hope for her. So I guess for me, those two things kind of really snapped me out of my own um, sort of thinking about it and getting depressed. Um, and I guess, you know, I would answer that question by what I know within history is that we have survived white invasion before, you know. We've had um, people come to WA in 1600s. So I guess a lot of the work that I'm creating um, 
poses those questions and answers them. Like, we have survived... How many, how many colonisations have we survived? How many apocalypses have we survived? Because we only talk about this one that we're dealing with right now. You know? Um, but I think the fact that we've got oral um, stories that link us back to continent shifting and, and megafauna and, you know, all of these amazing things that have happened in the evolution of this world that white scientists say that we was um, not um, privy to, you know, and it's like, well, we are the exception of every rule that has ever been applied in every kind of, um, um, I guess, study or, like... Um, I want to say discipline. Um, we have survived those things in the past. So what can we survive now? What more can we survive? And I think I come from that, again, that staunch, unbroken, matrilineal, radiatory bloodline um, that is proof that we have survived anything and everything that has ever, ever been placed as a barrier in front of us. And we have to really take strength in that. Um, for me, I guess it becomes this very concentrated kind of exorcism of emotions. Um, because I am an organic being. And again, anyone who's, who's birthed children will know the kind of automatic things that your body does. Um, we are more than capable and we have shown that in so many different ways. And I think, you know, there's a lot of things that just are innate to our survival. And there's a lot of things that we don't do that we don't understand um, because we're, you know, in this today and age um, where a lot of people are really just starting to understand the depth and the complexities and the amazing narratives that we have as being the oldest continuous culture, living culture in, in this world. I just, I love the way your brain works, Lorna. Like, I'm interested to know, I'm interested to know if Keith, like in your work, actually this is an everyone question, with the work that you do, like do you know what's on the other side of the change that you want? Like can you see it or is it just what is happening right now is not good enough and it, I might not be able to see what's on the other side but I know that I can't do this anymore. So I think prisons are a good example where we don't... Like, it's very hard for people to imagine what it looks like on the other side with no walls but what... Does that mean we don't do anything? You know? And you were saying some really interesting stuff before, Keith about that? Uh, I guess, like, for me, um, you know, coming out of custody, I guess I was dealing with about seven years on parole. And, um, you know, I couldn't ever get through um, my parole without reoffending and going back into custody. And, um, you know, the reasons, you know, th those are you know, a, a variety of reasons, but, you know, a lot of the reasons that I found was that it was white health workers or white counsellors or, you know, white security guards or police or, you know, telling me 
um, why I'm, you know, reoffending, and and it's either you know you're bad or you're sick or you know, and and for me as as an Aboriginal person that you know does come from a also a strong matriarchy uh, matriarchal line, you know, um, I couldn't understand how they could, in their minds. Um, even come up with that kind of thought um, to an Indigenous person and, and then place them into systems like rehabilitation and, you know, if, if they don't complete that, then, you know, it, it, they are to go back into custody. So I guess, you know, for, for, for me, um, you know, it was never to ask, though, what, what kind of world that I, I would like to be in. Um, you know, whether I want to be followed around the shops, uh, you know, every day or, you know, whether I do want to be um, harassed by the police just for going, you know, um, out with friends. Like, they, these kind of questions were never asked of me leading up to these offences. So I guess in my mind, I just could never understand, um, you know, the punishment side of it, I thought this really isn't, um, this isn't going to make me a better person. Like, um, this is just going to make me um, want to get out, like, you know, and um, not really learn anything in custody. And the only thing that I really did learn in custody was kind of the work that I'm in, in now, and that is, you know, of, of mutual aid. And um, I was telling Nayuka before about um, in custody, you know, the like the brothers will cook for each other and, you know, they'll chuck in food and, um, uh, you know, and, and toiletries if you land off the truck and you have nothing, you know, it's always what do you need. So, you know, I think like this, these, these type of, I guess, worlds, they're already happening. It's just when we're not, we don't actually see them. Um, and it's not uh, really given out to the world you know, it's kind of red taped first and they'll give you what they want to give you. Um, so for me, like, again, um, I guess the, the world that I would like to see would be the world that um, I see in my everyday community, in my everyday work and in my social groups where um, people in an act uh, the, the change that they want to see in the world, like in the future today, um, whether it be, you know, taking, um, you know, an elderly trans woman to the doctors or, you know, Centrelink appointments or, you know, like I mentioned before with the cans, like, like, the, the, like everybody can offer something. Um, and if we can get that to like organisation, like on an organisational level, like not just the grassroots, but also at the top, you know, where it isn't charity and, you know, where people want to take photos and, you know, um, like it's something cool to be an activist. Like, and I understand why white people think that it's so cool to be like Indigenous people, I get it. But yeah, um, I don't think you're going to change the world that way. I really think you have to tap into um, indigenous way of thinking by being on the ground with Aboriginal people. Um, yeah. Thank you, Keith. I love hearing, yeah, what you're saying about fellas in prison, just the care that people provide 
blackfellas provide each other. It's, it's like the world we want actually already exists. It exists in different places, but, yeah, it's, maybe it's not a matter of imagination. It's just actually we already have the tools and it's already here. Um, we just have to find our way to it. Um, Marley, did, was there anything you wanted to add in terms of... Because I know with, like, disability justice, there were times when, like... Like, I only just recently learned about lock hospitals, for example. Like, there was a time when that was really, really normal. Um, and there are institutions that were, you know, torn down eventually. Um, it's like we can't imagine it, though, until it actually happens. So I'm interested to know your thoughts on that. I guess coming back to your original question too, I one of like the things about immersing myself in abolition is that I've just had to like become comfortable in like not knowing the fucking answer. Like I don't know what um, the future holds. I don't actually know what like, not to say I don't know what I'm fighting for, like, I know the types and systems of care that would provide for my community, but I don't know the steps to get there. Um, I give it a red-hot go. But, um, yeah, I think, to me, a lot of the work we do is about being comfortable in not knowing. Um, and also, like Keith was saying as well, recognising that a lot of the things we're already doing actually are helping us build those new worlds and recognising that rather than, um, yeah, thinking that abolition or these new worlds are far off in the future. Um, and one thing that I can see this kind of discourse happening is in the debate to criminalise coercive control um, across Australia. So for people who don't know... Um, there is a campaign within the broader women's sector to criminalise coercive control, um, which are different forms of abuse, um, predominantly directed towards women. Um, and a lot of black women in particular have been making critiques of these moves to criminalise coercive control because we know police, prisons, criminalisation don't keep our communities safe. They only harm our communities. Um, and a lot of us have, like, come up against a lot of abuse, a lot of slack um, from many different white feminists that I will not name. Um, and particularly um, one of the big critiques of those who do push for abolition is that um, we need to work within the system that we've got now um, or that we can't articulate what the answer is beyond prison, so therefore it's not worth trying. Um, and I think that, yeah, to me, abolition and imagining and working towards these worlds is just innately knowing what we're living through now and the systems that we're being subjected to. Um, they're so violent that anything is worth trying beyond this, um, which is, yeah, I guess what very much directs me towards abolition and disability justice. Um, and just, yeah, knowing that even within our smaller communities, there are those moments and those microcosms where we can provide mutual aid for one another and 
we can fundraise to get someone a scooter. We can fundraise to make sure that someone has surgery on time. Like Keith said, we can make sure that our neighbour gets to their Centrelink appointment. We can make sure that our neighbour gets their car fixed or whatever. Um, and so I think it's that, yeah, drive that does give me some form of hope. I think more broadly, I would also say that I have been very pessimistic, but I have become more hopeful about imagining and building different worlds um, when I've accepted the kind of broader timescale of transformative change and being comfortable that the type of broader change I want to see will not happen in my lifetime. And that's actually okay. Um, and yeah, it's meaningful to even be a part of the work that our ancestors have done and that our future kin are going to do as well. Yeah. What, um, what things, Lorna, you were touching on when we were having a yarn before you were touching on this, like what helps you, like we might not be able to see on a large scale what, what that, you know, what that future is that we want necessarily. But what, what things help you imagine or what are there fictions or are there films or podcasts or whatever it might be that help you, help you realise like, oh, things don't actually have to be this way or there's so many different ways to live. Um, yeah, what unlocks your imagination, I guess? For me, like, being someone who, like, watches every Netflix series and, like, every movie and, like, there's a lot of really good ones out right now, actually, um, that are really close to the story that I've been writing. Um, like, a funny. little too close. <laughs> yeah, a little bit too close. <laughs> and it was filmed in Australia, too. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, I, I guess it's, it, like, for me, I guess it's... Um, when you talk in these pop culture terms, you're talking in ways that other people can understand. So, like, you know, I get that and that's beautiful. But for me, what really drives me is um, seeing young Aboriginal children really um, find their voices. That, for me, is the biggest G up. I also customise dolls. Like, when I was growing up, we didn't have black dolls. My mum used to order them from overseas and I was known as the only kid in Redfern and Waterloo that had black dolls. And they were all named after my, my sister's friends, you know? They all, like, had drama and everything going on each week. Um, but, you know, like, for me, when I grew up and I realised that other kids didn't have that, that made me want to fill that gap. So today, you know, seeing a young black child picking up a doll that looks exactly like them and seeing beauty in that, that's what G's me up. You know, um, doing, like, poetry, going into schools and um, doing poetry and stuff and then having, you know, somebody who um, doesn't fit the requirements of being academically a high achiever or, you know, literacy and all this sort of stuff, seeing that person then go, hey, um, you know, Lorna, I wrote this, this poem, can you have a look at it for me? You know, that's something that G's me up. Um, so for me, I guess, like, I don't look to outside sources of motivation and inspiration anymore. Um, because for me, I've had it all. 
You know, I was fed black politics, breakfast, lunch and dinner. I had black lawyers and black writers and black intellectuals sitting at my mother's dinner table. You know, um, I'm actually saddened that not many people have had that same experience. So I guess in a lot of the work that I do, I'm always trying to fill those gaps. So for me, you know, the biggest motivator is seeing a young black fella, young black kid coming up to me and saying, do you reckon I could get into poetry? Do you reckon I can write books? Do you reckon, you know, I'm, 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 I like acting, you know, how, do, how did you go about it? That's the biggest motivator for me. Anyone else? I think the thing that motivates me the most is community. It kind of ties back into like already seeing the things that I hope for the future already in place. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's seeing manifestations of community also acknowledging this, like, at the hope that builds when I'm around trans people is like nothing like the hope I build around other people. Um, the hope that I build with other First Nations people is so different to the hope that I build with those who don't have those connections. Um, yeah, and like seeing, seeing joy in the young people that we ultimately know if the system continues the way that it is, it's going to pull that joy from. Like seeing it before it becomes tainted and diminished and um, like seeing young black people with hope, the hope that I had taken away is what really motivates me as well. Yeah. Yeah, I would just echo what Estelle said. Um, it's the same for me as well. Like being in community with other disabled black fellows and other multiply marginalised disabled people. Um, you know, even if it's on a very small scale, we show that we can provide care to one another in the way that we know we need. Um, and that has particularly been true across the pandemic as well. Um, and I was actually, I was reading Growing Up Disabled recently, um, and a few of the contributors talk about how different their experiences of disability were when they weren't medicalized. They never, like obviously they still existed within this medical model of disability, um, but because of their different families and communities around them, they didn't have those imposing kind of hierarchies on them. And I think that speaks to what Lorna's saying too, like growing up really strongly with black politics. Like, I think that gives me hope because, yeah, yeah, it's, it's joyful. Um, and I think a lot of the time it's really easy when you're subjected to so much violence to forget that joy is possible. Um, or to forget to cherish joy even when it is momentary. Um, so, yeah. Um, like, I guess, what, like, what motivates me, the first thing that came to my uh, head was uh, animals, art and um, nature, really. Um, that's what motivates me. I, I really, um, yeah, get so much out of just being alone um, and I really do enjoy my own company and I guess that was the hardest thing for me coming into this work because you know it's all about like hey like let's all you know be a community like and um, you know that, that, that for me was 
quite daunting, you know, um, uh, you know, because it's like you have to take accountability in that. It's like, well, you know, you need to go out there and <laughs> make these connections. Um, so, you know, in, in a lot of ways, like, um, it's motivated me to, um, you know, number one, believe in myself and believe in the abilities and that um, my prison experience uh, is only one experience uh, of my life. And, um, you know, instead of looking at it in a, in a bad light that, you know, I was kind of forced to by, um, you know, the white regime, um, you know, it's that it's a, when I think back, I can think of quite, you know, beautiful moments. And, you know, that isn't with the structure of the place, it's more to do with the, uh, the connections that, you know, um, that blackfellas make in, in jail. And um, if, if, for me, like, I, I really would love to see a future where that is. Um, uh, you know, translated on the outside um, in, you know, in all different communities. And again, like, I think, um, you know, disabled folk and, and sex workers uh, have been doing this work uh, and this transformative work and these safe networks and, you know, um, uh, people without, you know, um, immigration status. So, you know, where they can't actually rely on, on the system. So, you know, I do believe that these worlds uh, you know, um, do exist and it's, for me, like I'm really excited um, to further deepen myself in the works of these people and, you know, um, supporting them in the organising that I can do. Um, and really, you know, I'm getting, I'm, I reckon I'm getting more out of it than, than they are and, I, you know, because it does give me a lot of hope that um you know of of the of the world and the future that I'd like to see um, yeah awesome thank you yeah it does um it's like yeah I've been watching a lot of Netflix as well there's a lot of shit on there <laughs> there's a lot of bad stuff um and I find like if I've watched three episodes and I'm like hooked in and I'm like oh why am I watching this but yeah, I guess I think, I think, yeah, I'm someone who gets really, can be kind of literal and take things like, it's not until I read it or I see it happening somewhere, I'm like, oh, of course, that can happen. Like, why can't that, yeah, why did I just not think that that could happen? And I think, yeah, like Keith and Estelle and I, um, like we sit on a committee for a fund that, like we raise money for people like incarcerated people and people coming out, uh, trans people. I'm like, oh, yeah, we can just do that. Like, we actually don't have to wait for permission. We can, yeah, we don't have to set up an organisation. You can just do the thing. Um, I think, yeah, until you see other people do it. And I think that's what COVID, like, it was such a shitty time last year, but something that gave me hope or like, oh, wow, look at the way we can care for each other. We're seeing, I don't know what things were like up here in Sydney, but in Melbourne, a lot of people, like blackfellas mobilised, like really quickly and were 
like, yeah, set up these mutual aid groups, but mutual aid is, like, a relatively newish term for something that blackfellas have, like, always done for each other. But, yeah, set up these mutual aid groups and, like, we're feeding... We were feeding our people, cooking meals for our people, like, checking in, calling elders, fundraising, paying people's rent, you know, that sort of thing. And for me, that was, like, look at what we can do. Look at what we can do. Like, we actually, we have that power. Um, I think the colony can kind of... We're so, like, brainwashed into thinking we need permission all the time or, like, we have to get organisational um, validation or whatever it might be, but it's like, oh, actually, you can just link up with a couple of people and start doing that thing, like, with your dolls or, you know, the work that you were already doing, Keith... Um, it's like, we can just do that, and that, that's what the future is. But it's not the future, it's, like, history. Um, might ask the audience if they have any questions. Um, please make it a question, and please make it a good question, because these people are really smart, and I don't want to... Yeah, yep. Hi, thanks very much for the talk. It's been very insightful. Um... Yeah, look, I guess um, listening to a lot of the thrust of what you've been saying, it's been really interesting because my sort of um, white male mind, which has been completely immersed in this um, Western ideology, just immediately kicks back against, oh, okay, we can't have a solution or there can be vague solutions. And I'm just being completely honest. So, and, and that's weird because I've always been quite sort of extreme and radical and being anti... Um, you know, capitalism and very much on certain ideological extremes. So, you know, I'm very open to ideas. And what I read recently was a book called Humankind, which was really interesting. And the author says, well, we all think that really um, modern society is what keeps us together. And if it goes away, we all turn into animals and we go back to some savage nature. And he says, well, actually, if you scrap society, let's look at what happens. And he takes examples. And he says, these are all these historical examples where the opposite happens. People are really kind to each other and they cooperate. And um, maybe the real problem is actually society, or more to the point, modern society. So like whiteness. What's this? Like whiteness. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We call it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we'll call it that, yeah. So, and I guess what I'm driving at is basically he seems to advocate in a vague way some form of anarchism. So I'm just wondering, and that tends to be a negative concept among, you know, white people, because um, like, oh, no, we can't have nothing because we're all, Because you, you know, can't control it. Fall to pieces. Yeah, exactly, right? So I'm just wondering, is what you're sort of talking about similar to that? Would, would you advocate for a form of anarchism like just shrink the state as much as possible? No, I think what we're talking about speaks to concepts that are much more ancient, um, uh, a lot older than even these terms that I just heard then. And I always laugh whenever white people say, you know, I'm radical, because I would say, well, let's test your radicalness by seeing how much land and privilege you're willing to give back as a part of being a descendant of the colonisers. So, you know, I think that it's really interesting, these terms that we all throw around and the practice of it. Because, you know, when we talk about our ancient society, we're talking about society that had all of these modern-day issues sorted out. And, you know, we don't have to speak in depth to it. You know, these are societies where um, 
you know, poly polygamy was practiced, where um, disabled children and children that didn't fit, you know, people's ideas of, of kids or humanness or whatever, that's just thrown out the window. You attack, out, you attack one of these kids, you're attacking all of them. You, you, you get my drift. I think what we're talking about is something that's much more ancient um, than any of the terminology that gets used today. You know, and I think Australia is a really interesting landscape because even a lot of international terms that get used, they are applied in a really weird sort of narrow-minded way here. So I would say, like, say, for example, reconciliation. In other countries, that means giving land back. Here, it means let's walk across the bridge and act like it's not a problem. A little morning tea. Exactly, you know? Um, we have a really, really interesting way of, of um, yeah, thinking about these concepts that are, are, are... Nothing's wrong with them, they're deadly. But what we're talking to speaks to something way more older. I think as well, it's just... It's interesting, I really like... Um like post-apocalyptic films and television shows to see the white imagination, because it's what it is. Shows like The Walking Dead, where it's not, um, it's not, you know, yeah, sure they use zombies as a way of, um, you know, they use that as a way to talk about. Well, you know, actually, the real, the real villain uh, is other humans. Um, and it's the way that white people conceptualise like what society would be like if they broke down and that they would all attack each other. And I think if... I think the way that blackfellas think about that is just... Well, what you've described there is colonisation. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, in our societies, we don't wipe each other out. That's an unheard of thing. That's a foreign idea, um, which has meant that we've been allowed to coexist, you know, for so long. And just on that um, post-apocalyptic thing, I always find it funny that white people then become us in this made-up future. And again, I just want to leave the point as, you know, our issues, um, wider society is a lot more empathetic, empathetic to our issues when it is set in a faraway galaxy and not here. You know, talk about Avatar, talk about, you know, all of these, these movies and series that talk about colonisation, but unless we got blue skin, you don't see our humanness. And I find that that, that concept is hilarious um, but you know there's a lot of psychology going on there and I think I think that that's for you mob to work out um, you know because this is our lane we've been in that we've been doing that we've been doing this for a very long time everybody else is just starting to catch up to it and again you know they got to imagine it in a far out there galaxy for it to hit home <laughs> thank you for that question got to hear some deadly stuff as a result can you join me in giving these excellent people a round of applause, please? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to and rate our channel wherever you listen to your podcasts.